The following is a Square and Compass podcast interview with worshipful brother Martin Fox, the general manager of Lewis Masonic in the United Kingdom. I was very excited to complete this interview with worshipful brother Fox. I will now briefly review his Masonic resume, which I've put onto the screen. Martin's interest in history and philosophy led him to Freemasonry, and he was initiated into Burlington Lodge Number 96, December 2001, and raised the third degree in 2003, and he took the Worshipful Master's Chair in 2009. He is an active member of Burlington, having been Assistant Director of Ceremonies for three years and Charity Steward for four. Having found a passion for Freemasonry, Martin, who was at the time running a book distribution company, felt he could put more to the craft. He was offered the position of marketing manager of Lewis Masonic Imprint in 2005 and in 2012 promoted to general manager. Through his work with Lewis Masonic, Martin has made it his duty to help spread the good works of Freemasonry and promote a positive image. He is also proficient in martial arts as well as fencing and boxing. Now, my interview with Worshipful Brother Martin Fox. Uh, and indeed, for any of your viewers who may be unaware of Lewis Masonic, Lewis Masonic is a very old company, uh, founded in 1886 to serve Freemasonry. And it's actually quite an interesting story. Uh, a Scots Freemason, who is also a printer, called John Hogg. He was the son of a, a famous Scottish poet uh, they called the Ettrick Shepherd. He'd come to London uh, to make his fortune and uh, was involved in uh, the printing of the Encyclopedia uh, Britannica and all sorts of interesting works. But he did notice that the Freemasons, some of them were being a little bit naughty Rather than memorizing their ritual, just from hearing it and seeing it, they were using some of these exposés that were being published. And because of that, silly hoax things were becoming real parts of ritual. And he thought, oh, this can't happen. People are publishing books and they're adding bits in and they're making stuff up. And the Masons are believing it. So he secretly started to publish the real ritual, but without any of the passwords or uh, the tokens of recognition, any of the things that would be seen as secrets uh, within the, the, the vows. So he published this and initially there's a lot of negativity, but he called himself, he didn't want to just put Jay Hogg on there. <laughs> he put, a. Lewis as a code, because he was a Lewis. And that's where Lewis Masonic came from. And now Lewis publishes all the main ritual books uh, used in England, including the Royal Arch and so on. And over the years, it's expanded to the point where now we have a very significant range. Now, one interesting thing to mention is there is a very old publishing company, almost as old as Lewis in America, called McCoy Publishing. And we've been trading together 
since the late 1800s and they are our distributors. So how wonderful to see this tradition carrying on. So my, my Masonic experience and, and education, as it were, has been very traditional and beautiful. I waited a year between each degree. And after every meeting, I had a, a mentor um, who would teach uh, philosophy. And it was quite interesting. We never really touched on anything to do with Masonic symbolism or anything like that. I learned uh, to read Plato and Aristotle. I learned uh, to enjoy Plotinus and Iamblichus. And you're probably aware that in English Freemasonry, particularly near the beginning from 1717 onwards, so the beginning of that Grand Lodge, having a meal and having something good to drink is, uh, has been part of our tradition. I know that's not the same everywhere. And uh, so imagine that uh, we used to sit uh, drinking port and uh, uh, talking about Plato to sometimes to four or five in the morning in our, our meetings. And that was my, uh, my uh, sort of Masonic experience, which is very different than what other lodges may be doing or other people might be uh, having as their, their time now. I, I, I love that. I think it's such a great reminder of the philosophical connections that exist in Freemasonry. Um, and the importance, you know, the liberal arts and sciences, and kind of ma maintaining that connection and that that teaching in lodges. One thing that I really enjoyed about your teachings uh, on your YouTube channel is the way you kind of, I think, bridge an important uh, a gap some people have. Because I remember when I was visiting, I was visiting my friend's lodge. Uh, this would have been. 2009 or something around uh, about that time and there was a candidate preparing to get his second degree and he mentioned and we were outside with him just talking to him before the lodge started and he, he said you know I'm a teacher and they teach us that memorization is the lowest form of learning is what he said uh, he said it's just root memorization and that doesn't mean that you're understanding it you're just mouthing the words. Um, now, he didn't do a great job when he did his uh, second degree, so he might have been preemptively justifying it. But what I like about your videos, because uh, this is something I've always believed but never been able to express as well as you did, um, is that memorization, when done well and done right, can be more than just you know, mouthing words you've memorized, they can be lead to understanding of the words and an understanding of the ritual. And you talk a lot about that in your videos about when you memorize something, you, you bring it into yourself, into your subconscious, into your spirit, and it becomes a part of, of, of you. Um, yes. Um, so I really appreciate the way you... you... Indeed. Um... Uh, the uh, mnemosyne, the, uh, the goddess 
um, of memory. Her children are the muses. And that's an important sort of uh, lesson here. Uh, so this is a very poetic way of saying that what you remember has an effect on your inspiration and your expression in life. Now, this, uh, your uh, dear brother, who is a teacher, he probably associates memory with rote learning and is unaware of the full possibilities and especially the historical possibilities of how it used to be used. Allow me to, to describe this a little bit. If we were to let go of our modern idea of memory, which is really just recalling something from the past, and to look at the wider meaning, what would it mean to a Renaissance gentleman? What would it mean to the Mason who first uh, started practicing the ritual we see now? Memory to him would mean anything you can create in your mind. And it would be very interesting. He would know that if you wanted to write a book, the main thing to do is to muse on it, to muse upon it. Uh, creative techniques using memory would involve you going over the story or going over the subject matter. If it was going to be inspiring, you'd lie on your back and you'd just keep thinking about it and you'd, or you'd lie on your front and keep thinking about it. This was what the, uh, comes from the medieval times. If you wanted to create a new invention, what do you want to do if you want to invent something? You need an inventory. You would memorize all the different things that were like the thing you were going to create. And you would put these into a, a, a mixing pot of your mind. Uh, they used to use the, the sort of comparison of baking. You put all the ingredients in and something rises uh, beautifully. In a sense, memory used to have all the associations we might have with hypnosis or creative visualization. What you put into your mind becomes you. And this was actually studied. So when a Freemason was learning his ritual in those times, when a speculative Mason did it, he would believe with the whole of his being, that every time a symbol remains in his mind, uh, this is an emblem, this is the word they used to use, uh, would come in the mind, it would change them. If you meditate on truth, you become more truthful. If you memorize a section uh, which is on eloquence, you become more eloquent. This is the, the, uh, the teachings behind there. So yes, I agree with you, there's a lot more to this, and I hope, hopefully, your teacher friend, by the time he's done his third degree or in the Royal Arch, he will have seen this in himself. He'll have noticed that strange things happen if you spend, uh, you know, an hour every evening memorizing lessons on being kind and virtuous. You find yourself, you practice that way of thinking so much that during the day it starts to shine out of your, your personality. You start to see it. And I think at a, at a certain point, it really does become, um, and this could be the connection with, with physical activity, uh, fencing or boxing, it, it becomes a, a muscle memory. If, 
you know, this, the start of it is just learning how to perform a particular action, a particular physical activity. Um, but if it's done well enough and long enough, you start to, um, you start to connect it and start to become uh, almost unconscious. So in the same way, I think if you're memorizing uh, memorizing works on kindness or memorizing works on uh, virtues, the Masonic virtues, for example, there may come a point where practicing those virtues becomes as unconscious as, you know, getting into the correct stance when you are uh, going into the boxing ring or something, something to that effect. Yeah, so um, I think you're right. There's, there's a connection in the sense that making a memory automatic and part of you when you when you first box that jab just doesn't come naturally but after a while you just trigger it or when you fence that lunge isn't inbuilt this is the same process we're doing when we we practice there's certain points in Freemason when you learn never to turn your back on someone who genuinely needs help or always to think before you speak and make sure your words have the of right intentions. Practicing these again and again as training means that when you actually are in that situation, that appears. I also believe that some of it is about awareness. In a fencing match, if you make it, if you forget yourself for a moment, it's, you're going to feel the, the point of someone else's uh, foil upon your chest. Uh, Likewise, in the same with, with Freemasonry, and every Freemason watching this is going to go, oh, yeah, I know that. If you've got a certain set of lines to perform or a certain piece of ritual and you know it's coming, the worst thing you can do is relax. You know where the prompt is and you keep watching and you just think, just you let your mind go on anything else. You think, oh, I wonder how long it's going to get to take home or I wonder what's going to. And in that moment, you, you lose it. You lose focus and the prompt appears and you have to say to, right, come on, mind back. You've lost the, your place. You need to be present. Now, you mentioned you, you brought up boxing and fencing and these are beautiful arts. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, the, people don't quite see the majesty and the skill in this. But now I have this opportunity to talk to the world. I, I must say that when it comes to fencing, foil is a, a far uh, more honorable uh, weapon to use, uh, which of course is my specialization, than epe, which is of course my fiance's specialization, uh, which the epe, they can hit you on the hand and uh, all over. Yeah, I know it's uh, so um, I just wanted to mention that and put this out into eternity uh, to make sure that uh, uh, everyone's absolutely clear on that under the circumstance whereby no certain people can't respond or defend uh, this, their point. Hey! It's, it's good to know that is going on the internet forever. I'll be sure to, uh, to put that in the clip as well so everybody sees it. Yes, my my fiance you know, is. I I fenced very briefly. 
No, no, go ahead. Yes, my fiance, she is a historian and probably could put together a complex argument or, or maybe to her, um, the, just, just using the body as a target and not the head and the arm is not real sword fighting. But uh, if she uh, requests to appear on your show to make a response, I don't think it would be very interesting to our brothers. So moving on from that. <laughs> I, I agree. We should we should move on. We've, we've all heard it. We know it's true. Uh, yeah, I, I the the tension between well now you and your fiance for your your fencing, but uh, the tension between um, kind of being present and the. Um, unconscious uh, kind of the tendency to go on autopilot if you've been doing something for sufficiently long such as ritual work uh you know yes. if you've opened the lodge uh, at this point uh, whatever chair yeah I, I must have opened the lodge at this point in one or another hundreds of times um there can be a tendency even as a, a visitor or as a guest to kind of zone out during these lectures uh, and during mm. things you've done many times. What would be some advice you would have for people to avoid uh, that tendency to go on autopilot or to zone out when listening, um, to kind of remain present and in the moment? So there's some important things we need to the world to know, and in particular need Freemasons to know about Masonic ritual. First of all, there is a significant positive effect on your consciousness. Now, this isn't just me saying this. This has been scientifically proven. Masonic ritual uses a specific type of memory, which is locational memory. It's the same as uh, a memory uh, athlete would use. So uh, you've heard of a memory palace or mind palace. Well, our lodge is that for us. We memorize specific things in specific locations and we walk around that lodge room or that temple in set orders. Studies show that people who practice this have got superior recall in, their, uh, in terms of things which are very distant, things which have happened in the past, and superior um, recollection in terms of situational things where are my keys what am i doing next so powerful is this training method that someone who's done this for just six weeks or so many years later they can still see the brain is wired for superior recall now there's not just one study showing this there are repeated studies that also show there are some other unusual benefits those who train in memory, as we do, have superior awareness and observation skills. And as they get older, seem to have better use of their bodies. There must be some nerve uh, effect. It's good for your nerves. So this is an upgrade for your consciousness. But don't waste this. Uh, people do strange things in life. They, they go along to it. You talk about martial art class. I've seen people go to very expensive seminars with famous martial artists. And then when they're meant to be practicing, 
stop and talk to their friend. And when the teacher comes along, start practicing again. Wow. So they're paying money to fly to a different country and have a teacher teach them to avoid it. Why didn't they just keep the money and stay at home? If you're going to be in Lodge, be there. So let's use that. You know all these hours you're rehearsing the ritual at home? Well, you've got these people doing it in front of you. Even the bits you're not learning now, you'll be learning later on. Your mind has that opportunity to learn. So if you engage with every word, every time, you will find some amazing things appear. Subtle things of symbolism. Amazing things. There are lots of codes hidden in there. Uh, some of them influenced by the Kabbalah, some of them influenced uh, in, in Latin and, and so on. The symbolism in the, the things we do that is deliberately, it's been evolved and concealed. And sometimes it's not even that insight. Sometimes you think, oh, wow, I need to apply that to my life. I've, I've missed that lesson. And it could be a wake up. I actually got so excited by one of these. So imagine this in a very reserved English lodge. We're all sitting there in our, in our nice suits and sitting there listening. And I had a eureka moment. And uh, actually, I, I um, was so convinced this was life-changing and important part of the ritual, I interrupted. I just thoughtlessly said, wow, this means that, <laughs> in the middle of an installation. You know, so for those who aren't Masons watching this, they were making a new master and they're just about to finish things and suddenly Martin decides he's had a eureka moment that everyone must hear. And of course, I realised after I said that, that maybe, yes, it is very important, but timing is a lot of things. But yes, so keep watching. This is a meditation. Um, I am convinced, um, and I believe actually, if you, if you read my book on the subject, um, the, the Mosaic Palace, uh, I have a copy somewhere here. If you were to read this, the Mosaic Palace, you will, you will uh, see the evidence I've got behind this. If you were to talk to a, someone at the beginning of the transformation of Freemason, of stonemasonry into speculative Freemasonry and ask about the ritual, they would see as a form of memory meditation. They may even use the word meditatio, the Latin, because that's what they had seen other people doing. The monks would be doing memory meditation. Uh, they're, they're, build, they're actually building the building for the, the priests and the monks and the nuns, and they're all doing this. So I think they would have seen it as a meditation. And there are manuals, there are actually manuals of the time on how to contemplate different religious buildings um, with poetry and symbolism. And it's more or less describing what we do. So use it as a meditation. Don't drive all the way to your lodge and then not be there. Uh, that's my, that's my uh, advice to someone to keep alert, and use that as training. Uh, you want to be more alert in life, be more alert in, in lodge. 
And I think one of the benefits of that alertness can be whether it's your own lodge or especially when you're visiting a lodge is, you know, I've always believed that everybody takes something unique and, and different from the ritual. And the result will be the way that they emphasize certain words or pause before certain uh, segments of the ritual will be unique. And if you're listening carefully to somebody new performing, even if it's a piece of ritual you've heard a hundred times, somebody new will have their own emphasis and own spin and own interpretation. And you can pick that up by listening to them perform the ritual. And then that may cause you uh, to have your own Eureka moment as you talked about and consider yes. the, the ritual in a new light or in a new, um, yeah, in, in a new light or with a new interpretation. And that can open up whole new worlds of possibilities for you in the ritual. Absolutely. And I think um, what's interesting about this, I don't know whether it sort of uh, has crossed your mind, is if all the things we've just said, um, if we were to talk to a, an elderly past master, if I said to him, he sat down and said, does Freemasters remembering the ritual have any effect? I'm sure you would, wouldn't be surprised if he said, well, I think it keeps me alert, keeps my, keeps my mind working. And uh, I think, yeah, I think it makes me be a better person because it's in there somewhere. I think a lot of Masons intuitively know what we've now scientifically proven. So I think that's, it's, it's, this, is, this is the uh, wisdom, uh, but it, it's sort of nice to express this in, in modern terms. I also think listening to someone else perform a ritual they have memorized is about respect. So you, if you've memorized the charge or a tracing board, I don't know whether tracing boards are common in Canada, are they? They are. Would feel very, may suffer from some disquiet inside if you were to find that uh, the vast majority of the brethren were not engaged with what you were expressing to them. Let's uh, set the example of what we'd like to see in others and, and listen intently. And let's use this as a contemplation. In, in truth, there aren't many people still physically meeting for to be better people in terms of having a better effect on the world. Um, maybe some Buddhist, maybe Buddhist groups could be an exception to that. Sort of they, they're meeting to cultivate virtue. I think that's probably the truth. Um, there may be, and, uh, but we are a society that people of all religious persuasions can, uh, can join who wish to cultivate virtue. That's an interesting phrase. It's very, modernly would probably be harmonious kind actions in the world or something would be the way to phrase it, wouldn't it? Um, I think if we're going to do it, let's really do it. Um, and it's interesting to see how it's adapting. The, yeah, the, the, the way it's adapted, um, you, you brought up the interesting point of there's not a lot of people uh, meeting right now to to work on virtue or to cultivate virtue 
unfortunately, right now, due to, to COVID, really there's not, there hasn't been a Masonic meeting in Ontario since uh, March of 2020. And right now our lodges are suspended until, our in-person in meetings are suspended until at least April of this year. Uh, I'm not sure what it's been like in England, but you know, how, how do you and, and brethren stay motivated to practice their ritual work without that in-person uh, in person lodge work? I mean, we do have Zoom meetings and correspondence and, you know, the, the functions of a lodge, the administrative functions of a lodge remain in place, but the actual ritual work is what's taken the major hit. So how, how do you or anybody stay motivated during this time? Yes, um, one thing I have noticed about Freemasons in their sort of nature is there's most certainly something in our ritual that rubs off about making the best of things. And what I've noticed is that during this time, certainly there isn't so much of a focus on ritual learning. Uh, perhaps it's uh, uh, going to increase when you can see a date when you will be able to meet. But brethren seem to be getting very interested in their niches. You know, it's quite true, isn't it, that most Masons have got the thing they're interested in. I'm a memory specialist and uh, I can talk to you about memory uh, for hours on end. And there's that, that hours on end thing might be different for different brethren. Um, but, and they tend to be enjoying that. And this is keeping it alive. So I can talk, I can tell you, I've got this sort of inside view of this uh, working for the world's uh, largest and oldest Masonic publishing company. People are buying very specialist, interesting books. Um, our publishing schedule is as, uh, as full as it's ever been because people are at home writing them as well. I've noticed really interesting things in the sense that uh, many Masons are buying books on memorization technique. We've got a lovely book called The Five Minute Ritualist, uh, which is selling uh, very well. And on areas about other orders, you know, so there's many other orders you can join beyond craft masonry. People are researching that. Um, likewise, some areas perhaps you wouldn't normally explore, the kind of um, peculiarities and the really exciting uh, areas that people, uh, when they're running a lodge, when they're doing their ritual, they haven't got time to, to go into. Uh, things like, uh, you may or may not be aware that Lewis Masonic actually published the original Illuminati ritual, the, the genuine ritual of the, uh, the uh, Bavarian Illuminati. Amazingly, a lot of brethren, they're, they're interested in this this order that became legendary. We recently published the Rosicrucian, a set of papers. Uh, it's very rare I publish something that I, is breathtaking to me. I couldn't believe the level of insight and scholarly work this was. And that's happening really, uh, people are really interested in, in that. We do books which are really in-depth things about the minutiae of ritual. 
you know so when uh, did a certain th- symbol come in what was the first use of it what are the interpretations in different countries what's the biblical reference what references to somewhere else those are really doing very well I could probably fetch these and show them to you, but this is this to me shows that we're making the best of it and that people are still enthusiastic and still full of energy. And likewise, things like this, this uh, podcast and uh, YouTube channel and uh, the, the other uh, talks that are taking place, hasn't the Masonic world come to life uh, like this? if we could keep doing this when we're meeting as well, I mean, because it's great for people who aren't Masons, but feel kind of in tune with it to learn more. It's good for people who are considering being Masons in the future to be able to think, they can watch this video and think, do I want to sit in lodge with Martin and Cameron? Are they, would they, these be good brothers for me? Um, they might have a little bit of different experience depending on whether they visit my lodge or yours, Cameron, but uh, they'll know that we are all unified in our wanting to make the world better by making ourselves better people and that uh, they'll, they'll be able to see uh, if, if the conversation would be exciting and stimulating. Uh, it makes a big difference yeah, having yeah. the right people around you, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. A, it, it definitely makes a difference. So there we are. If you're watching that's, this video and you agree that uh, the foil is... No, let's not go into that. But if you're watching this video and you would like to talk about uh, history, Renaissance manuscripts and philosophy and symbolism in your spare time, if you really want some allies near you who are as excited by your success as they are by their own, you really want to see uh, things go well in the world, uh, then yeah, you, you might want to talk to some of the Masons near you. That's that's the kind of the key. And maybe all these podcasts I, um, videos would be would show people that. Um, and yeah. Ab- and, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm worried though now, now that I've, I've stepped into a... Uh, Am I going to have a lot of comments on my video about the benefits of uh, the foil versus <laughs> the FA, the best type of fencing? Is it and a big war in the fencing community? That's going to be terrible, Cameron. I've put myself in a, a horrible position because if they challenge me to a duel, they've got a, higher, a larger target area than me. And, and if, if they beat me based on that, haven't they proven the very truth that their system is superior. It's, it's a very, I, I've got myself in a terrible position. Maybe I should start talking about boxing and that would be, oh my, would be safer. But um, hopefully you will also have comments on the YouTube channel of people who think, actually, I would flourish with allies and friends like you describe. Now, one thing I want to mention here, this is really interesting, Cam, and I'd like your opinion. A lot of people, they keep talking about younger people in Freemasonry. And that's really good, isn't it? Younger people in Freemasonry. It's wonderful to think about. You've got a bit of zap there. You've got someone. But I think we need more older people. I think that there's some people who are pretty lonely and um, having 
us men, you know, we're not so good at booking things in. You know, having having a meeting every sort of uh, couple of months or every month, depending on which lodge you're in, uh, booked in with a in England at least with a meal. I think that's a fabulous thing for a retired person to have. I think that's a great thing. So I think we we should just be we shouldn't worry too much about uh, focusing on a particular area. I think it's a, it's a really good thing uh, for, for people of all different ages. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to kind of what we were talking about before we started recording. Um, really, the, the emphasis, I think, should just be on on active members so if somebody is joining uh, the craft whether they are you know 21 or or in 50s or in their 70s um, do they have the you know my concern is always going to be do they have the ability and the capacity to attend regularly or be an active part of lodge because it kind of goes back to what you talked about with the um martial arts seminars in that I don't want to be having somebody join and, and having the lodge take their money if they are not going to be active either because they have too many commitments outside and they can't make it to lodge or they are able to show up but they're not really present they're just there in which case I don't feel they're getting as much out of Freemasonry as they could or as they should so I, and I do this whenever I meet with a prospective candidate, I always emphasize, you know, I don't want somebody joining if they're not able to participate actively and take the most out of it. Um, but I don't think age should be a factor one with the other. Yeah, so I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I think the, the important thing is a balance. So. Um, I know I, I don't want to be in a circumstance where I'm giving a heart surgeon or an anaesthetist a little saying, come on, why are you not doing more ritual work? Uh, as long as he's coming along and he can listen to the ritual and he can be a positive influence and contribute if there's a charitable thing and advise and we've got his, his insight. And likewise, I may be, I'm a memory guy and a ritualist um, so I, I, I like challenges of memory. I like a ritual thing. Some people aren't like that. Some people, uh, it takes a lot for them to do things and they, they've got, they would benefit from memory training, but they need to be sort of a bit more gentle with it. So uh, for me, I think we need to make sure the person is going to benefit from the lodge and, and lodge from them. So it works well together. Um, I've seen some lodges, uh, I've actually been to lodges in America, where maybe their focus is not as um, on learning and on ritual as I would uh, like, but the good works they were doing in society. Wow. Uh, so I'm at Southern American Lodge, and they're, they're giving blood, they're sponsoring kids through uh the scholarships uh, they they're cooking food and giving it to the homeless out there they're running uh, different uh, programs where they're run, um, raising money for local charities 
they're doing it. So um, I've learned myself to, to you know, to, to, to value all aspects of what a lodge can do. Uh, that really, I've always remembered that, uh, seeing that happen. I thought, yeah, that's, that's putting your money where your mouth is. That's, uh, yeah, walking the walk, uh, not just talking the talk there. Yeah. Um, of course, ideal lodge would be both, wouldn't it? It'd be, it'd be very doing and very learning. It would be uh, our charity would be a side effect of our, uh, our good character. And uh, that would, that would uh, work in balance. Now, um, uh, Cameron, well, I yeah, don't I know why I find myself wanting to ask you a question here. This is churning the tables. I wondered what your thoughts are on the Royal Arch, whether you think this is a valuable um, part of uh, Freemason's journey, whether this is um, in Canada, a, a separate degree, a Red Lodge, is how, how it works for you and what your position is. I, I am a fan of, of the rights. I am a Scottish right Mason uh, myself. I'm 18th degree. So I've not joined the York right, but I there are some Masons, some brethren who, and I actually had a guest on my show who are concerned that you know it's you're you're taking from a, a smaller and smaller pool at a time when the demand for uh, a man's time is, is growing and growing. I had um, a professor on my podcast who wrote a book about the rapid expansion of Masonic temples in North America between 1870 and 1930. And he noted at that time you had Masonic lodges, you had Scottish Rite and York Rite uh, and Shriners were growing at such a rapid rate that, you know, in some towns you could have one hall for Freemasons only, one hall for the York Rite, one hall for the Scottish Rite, uh, one hall for the Shriners. Um, but we, he talked about how the kind of the, the the socioeconomic factors of that time period lent itself to this rapid growth and expansion. And I know some Masons now are concerned that uh, you, people or men are, are working longer and longer hours without necessarily an increase in wages, at least in North America, um, two-income households, all of these things are making it harder for um, a Mason to be both an active member of his lodge as well as an active member of the Scottish Rite or the York Rite, um, and that it's easy for somebody to get overwhelmed if they decide to join a Rite and a Masonic Lodge. Um, my philosophy is so long as the, it, it goes back to what I talked about before, so long as when somebody's joining a Rite, they're aware that it will take time and there are responsibilities and they can balance those effectively, I'm all for having a strong Scottish right and York right. Not to the point though that it can overwhelm perhaps a, a new Mason who just became a master Mason and is now 
looking at joining all these rights. That's interesting um, you, you should say this. Um, these studies we've seen in Great Britain show that what used to happen was you would join a lodge near you. That'd be your lodge. And you would go to that lodge and you would fulfill your duties in there. In the modern day, the vast majority of Freemasons are a member of three to five lodges. And what happens is they visit another one that's maybe in a different city or 10 miles from their home that their friend, and they think, I'll join this. So they spread themselves quite thinly. Now in England, we don't have the same system of York Rite and Scottish Rite. There's lots of little independent things you can join. You can do kind of the equivalent of the uh, Scottish Rite. We call it Rose Choir. But the York Rite degrees are all separate organisations. And you get some people who are a member of 15 different orders. And wow, they're out every night having a meal with someone. And um, it's really wonderful if that's what they enjoy. And sometimes they are retired people, as we talk about. So this is a good social thing. I often look at it and think, well, I don't think I could do that. I like to, I like to do things which are non-Masonic. I like to spend time with people and, and I don't want to spend all my time with just men, you know. Uh, but some people do all of this and they can do it. They can do everything. So there's the odd person that is willing to do everything and doesn't get overwhelmed. I suspect one of the side effects of this pandemic may be that we move back a little bit to one local lodge and maybe another right, as you say, which is local. People perhaps might want to do that a bit more when they're sort of traveling different areas. I don't know, it could be a sign of that. Uh, be interesting to see how what goes on and uh, that that might change the what what's happening a little bit yeah i'm very interested to see what freemasonry looks like once we come out of this pandemic either uh due to uh, vaccinations or um however however it is that we come to the other side of this kind of what freemasonry will will look like i certainly think we're going to see more virtual education and online education just because it allows you know me to talk to somebody in england or be a, in a, a virtual meeting space uh, without having to travel necessarily uh, so it's I think we'll see more of that, but whether or not we'll see an increase in lodge attendance because people will be just so have so much desire to be around people again that's not on a computer screen, or whether we'll see a um, back to normal, back to regular attendance levels or membership levels. I'm just really curious and I don't. You know, I, I like to think I, I can guess kind of where Freemasonry is going, but this is one of those times where I really am not sure. So I'm very curious as to where it will go. Well, it's worth noting this isn't our first pandemic as an organization or our first big challenge, but it is the first time we haven't met. 
So through other pandemics, they continued, meetings continued, and through, through world wars, even in uh, the most adverse circumstance, people kept meeting. Um, I, I think the momentum will, will restart. And as you say, there'll be some people who have got a lot of passion and uh, have, will be back uh, with uh, great vigor. And there'll be some people a bit more cautious who maybe, maybe don't feel ready for a while. Um, so yes, it's, we, you and I are going to have to adapt and I suspect uh, take on more duties. So I myself, um, my priority is to my mother lodge and if they should so need me to do more than I will uh, during the time after this. In the meantime, though, um, it's a great opportunity to learn, isn't it? And I don't just mean reading. Uh, I mean the, the talks going on and, uh, and conversations like this, where you can, you can learn from someone else um, and to help. In England, many of the Masons have been raising money to help people through these adverse circumstances. And I don't think the, that's going to be over when, as you say, if we do return to normality in terms of the virus, I don't know whether our economy will recover with such speed. So there may be those who, through unavoidable circumstances of calamity and misfortune, are reduced to the lowest ebb of poverty and distress and thus need help from us. One thing that uh, I've been thinking about a lot recently, um, especially since, well, I would say since January 6th, but um, uh, even before that, and I was wondering, I think you might have an interesting take on, on this based on your, your classical um, education and your interest in philosophy. I'm not as smart as you, so my, uh, my touchstones tend to come from, from pop culture. But I've been thinking a lot about, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it, it was a book and then became a movie um, uh, called Fight Club by Brad Pitt, Edward Norton. Yes, so um, Cameron, first of all, let me say, um, you, uh, I believe you, your intellect is most certainly a match for mine. And uh, we, we have the um, uh, same enthusiasm and interest for the world. Uh, what's wonderful about the English accents, it does help you sound a bit more clever than you are. But um, my, uh, my dad's from England, and, uh, and that's not true at all in his case. Oh, no, but it's, it also works with uh, uh, a, a, uh, some other foreign um, accents. My, my um, mentor in Freemason was Belgian, and everything he said sounded like it was great wisdom and really stayed with me. It was, it was wonderful. But I well, must warn you. He's not my fault, though. He's a Geordie, so he can't help his accent. Hey, but that's, that's a very good accent indeed, being a Geordie. Yes. Hmm. Make, make sure he keeps that no matter what. There's certain ways you can say things with great succinctness uh, and great clarity with uh, a Geordie accent that just, just uh, cuts through everything. But talking about television and talking about popular culture, so I must warn you that some of my disciplines in life is to make 
all forms of entertainment exceptional. So they're an exception and they are exceptional. So I, um, I don't think it's a good idea to have a television. I think that yeah, people end up wasting too much of their life watching other people pretending to do things. And this was a sort of a big thing for me when I realized I saw this sort of uh, report and it showed that the, the thing that most humans do the most in the whole of their life is watch television. I thought, wow, wow. So this isn't to say that I don't think it's a wonderful thing to have a certain series or a movie or something. It can be really inspirational, but I really pick and choose them uh, very wisely. And we've talked about my fiance. Uh, she, she, she'll sort of say, you must watch this, Martin. You must watch this. And it will take a lot of wearing me down for me to finally watch it and then say, oh, wow, why didn't you tell me this was so important and up my street? And she's like, oh. So unfortunately, one of the ones I haven't seen is Fight Club. But I do know some people around me are very inspired by it. Uh, so you tell me, tell me about Fight Club and how this is sort of related here in our sort of discussion about life and personal development. Well, luckily for you, it's also a, a book. It was a book first um, written by, uh, I can never pronounce his last name, Chuck. Helen Chuck, I do believe. Um, anyways, it's, I think it's become a much more resonant movie and book in the last few years, but I think it was very prescient. Uh, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it. It's about uh, a character by the name of Edward. Well, Edward Norton is the actor. Um, and he is very, uh, you meet him and he's very unsatisfied with his life. Despite the fact that from the outside, it seems like a perfectly adequate life. Um, you know, he's got a job, he has a, a condo, but he's very much not fulfilled and, and not happy with his place in the world and his connection to himself. Um, and he meets the, the Brad Pitt character, Tyler Durden, who um, basically exists in a very different world. He's very anti-capitalism, anti-corporatism. Um, he kind of lives in like a flop house um, basically throughout the, they create, uh, uh, I won't spoil the twist because it's kind of a cool twist, but they, they create Fight Club where it turns out that there's a lot of men who feel very much like the Edward Norton character, unattached to life and unhappy with the consumerism and, and trying to find connection via buying things uh, that they're not able to, to find happiness in that way. So they start Fight Club, um, and and in that case, they kind of find themselves a level of satisfaction and happiness through through violence. But if the violence is it's strangely fraternal. There's all sorts of rules around it. Like you have to uh, if somebody 
you know, taps, you have to quit. And it's, it's this underground fight club that has these, you know, all, all these famous rules to it. Um, and then slowly but surely, uh, the Tyler Durden, the Brad Pitt character starts to morph this into a much more violent and a much more uh, extreme type of club. And the ending, it's, it's very ambiguous as to, I suspect the author might have viewed it as a happy ending, at least in the movie, but they end up blowing up uh, a whole bunch of, you know, skyscrapers like uh, uh, banks and, and all these quote unquote um, uh, pillars of capitalism or corporatism or, or whatever it might be. But I, it's very unclear how he views the ending, whether he views it as a good ending or a bad ending, at least in the movie. But I've been thinking a lot about that movie because I think it speaks to this idea, this was in the 90s, that men were not, not feeling connected to the world in a positive way or to themselves. And it was very easy and very, um, the danger of that is that somebody can come along like a Tyler Durden or you can start to connect with unhealthy um, ways to see the world or kind of a nihilistic approach to things and you know the, the whole point of the the that movie I think one of them is that people go from you know complaining about being slaves of society whatever that might be to becoming actual slaves for the Tyler Durden character they end up you know yeah caught in a bit of a trap of their own making yeah a good path. so so I just think um I think that they saw this at the time this was in the 90s that people were feeling less and less connected to each other and less and less connected to themselves and the world around them and the danger is where that can lead that can lead to violence or nihilism or anger if there's not a healthy way to connect with each other. And I think sports can provide that, but I think Freemasonry can provide that also. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. And um, here's some thoughts. Um, if, if, you're, uh, if you look at the world and you think, actually, we've got a bit confused, haven't we? We're, we're digging up all this metal and fuel and everything and making plastic things and making everything disposable and we've got a whole culture which is based on struggling for money and position and pride and image and how many likes you get on Facebook and how many people are following your Instagram. We've got caught up in wanting to own objects and status and uh, showing off and it's, it's just I want to rebel against this. You can understand someone with all that frustration could think that rebellion, uh, the way to rebel is to do something against things or people that represent that. You know, you were talking about in this scene and you know, there's other people who do that kind of thing, don't they? They see a, maybe a company or a corporate or something. I would like to suggest that real powerful rebellion is actually actively and beautifully engaging in the alternative. So rebellion against uh, consumerism, uh, 
against the sort of uh, this uh, pride culture and financial stuff would be you with your friends in your garden or allotment or in a field growing your own organic uh, food. It would be you repairing that thing of clothes. It'd be you buying something which uh, is to use it again or refilling that bottle. It would be you learning to put your costs really down through this kind of thing. And think how disempowering that would be if you're working with a team and enjoying these things to, to those who rely on your greed, rely on your impression. That's, uh, they can repair <laughs> the shop front if you, if you smash it, but they can't repair the business if you don't use it. And you have, we've got the power in our hands. And I, I think that what's lovely about that story you told me about that is, an, is that it could show us a real important way. So there's obviously in many people, particularly men, you've got this sort of testosterone pumping around your body. We know it makes you more ambitious. We know it makes people more aggressive and they want to explore limits and stuff. So martial art, or, or we're talking about fencing and boxing, this is a wonderful outlet, but also channeling that, you know, you can imagine uh, the digging of the garden or the creation of that orchard or the brewing of that uh, 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 sort of cider to uh, sell or whatever. Um, the uh, raising of the chickens, you can put that into that effort. You could use that uh, drive in, in your day-to-day -day work Make sure that, you know, if you're a publisher, you're using recycled paper, make sure you could. Uh, and I think this is where we could do this. So I can imagine this alternative, this enlightened fight club. Let's imagine this now, you and I together, Cameron. Uh, they could be learning Kung Fu of some type, couldn't they? Yeah, and, and I think that's that's my ultimate critique of the book is that uh, and and the message, I think where, I think the, the author, he adequately identifies the problem, but he misses the, the answer. He, he adequately identifies that there's a whole group of, of men who feel uh, isolated and alone and unfulfilled. And, you know, they just don't feel connected to the world around them. But he seems to focus the reason for this on external factors, on consumerism, on, you know, capitalism or, or whatever it might be, uh, as opposed to recognizing that there are things that they can do, such as what you talked about, or even, um, you know, they can, they can find connection through sports, through martial arts, or in the case of this, they can find connections through Freemasonry, through fraternal organizations. Like they don't need to find it in this, uh, what turns, what in the end of it would be, you know, a terrorist organization. Um, so I don't yeah, think so, he... It seems to me like this, this uh, movie, this film, is a contemplation on what we what could happen if we were to choose to release our aggression a little bit more 
and to explore the limits of what we're capable of. And that's quite an interesting thing. So people watching this could all relate to, could I, could I have a fight with someone? When you know, maybe the last scuffle you had was sort of when your childhood or in your teen years, maybe you had a run in. Could I have that? You can understand that in a controlled environment. Could I box? Could I uh, do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? And obviously, the, this film, from what you describe, explores what would happen if that kept escalating. So you had perhaps the wrong mix of people. And and there's actually some interesting studies into this show that getting anger out, uh, we feel like it's going to get rid of it. You know, if, you, if you're very angry and you hit a pillow, it turns out actually that in the long term makes you more angry. It might in the short term feel good, but the person gets used to expressing it in that kind of way. The best way is to resolve the actual cause of the anger and to dwell on the opposites in, in, the, in, in other times. Um, but in this case, it shows this is a cautionary tale. So we can take from that. It's very interesting. And, and, and they needed that dramatic ending for us to get that drift that actually this can go too far and to make it very interesting. Our film, Enlightened Fight Club, where everyone gets together and trains in Kung Fu and learns to meditate and has a more harmonious relationship with their wife and children and plants organic vegetables, which ends in everyone achieving a, a balanced life with a sense of purpose isn't such an exciting movie, but it also wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, warn against what happens if you, if you express some things and they get a bit out of control. So yeah, it's, it sounds like what, what an interesting thing to, to discuss, Cameron. Thank you for telling me about it. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking a lot about it because I think, you know, one area where this, this is why groups like Freemasonry and Freemasonry are so important because um, they can give people connections and a sense of purpose and uh, they can kind of fight against that nihilism that I, I see more and more, it seems like it's more and more creeping into the world. Um, you know, uh, Aristotle said, man is a political animal. I think what he meant by that is not that he didn't mean in terms of Republican or Democrat or conservative or, or liberal. He meant it's in our nature to want to gather and create things and create order, orderly things. And I think Freemasonry can give people that, can give men that. It's just a matter of getting them to it and encouraging Freemasonry to grow. Yeah, so um, I think um, a lot, if, you, if you listen to people when they feel a little bit sort of despondent and everything seems a bit pointless, often they're sort of taking a very big view. Say, oh, the whole world's going to end and, you know, and, and I can't, one person can't. If you, if you shrink this down a little bit and say, yeah, 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 don't look at the big picture for a second, let's have a look at this. They can help. I remember there's a, there's a, a wonderful story about a, a Zen monk. He's at the seaside and he's, all the, uh, uh, there are um, starfish washed up all across the shore. And he's picking them up and throwing them back in to the sea. And the passerby wanders up to him and says, listen, what are you doing? Wasting your time. 
you can't possibly make a difference to all this. The whole shore's covered in starfish. And the Zen monk says, made a difference to him, slosh. Made a difference to him, splosh. So yeah, I think focusing that in, that in. Um, it's interesting, you know, what you, that quote from Aristotle, um, there used to be an idea, one that we'd find a little bit um, interesting modernly, um, that you could achieve a state of genuine overall happiness in life. Um, this, the word for this was eudaimonia. Eudaimonia means human flourishing. So eudaimonia would be, you've got the, the right mindsets, you've got the right physical posture, you've got good health, you've, you've got the right job, you've got the right friends, you've got the right partner, everything is flourishing for you, your creativity is right, your ambition is right, you've got the right kind of um, income to support uh, the family if you choose to, do, um, to have a family, you've got the right calling and direction, you've got the right beliefs, you've got the, you're, this is all, everything's flourishing on all levels. This is sort of like the uh, sort of an enlightenment in the world, you know. Um, uh, if you if if you think about it, it makes more sense actually. And a lot of visions of enlightenment involve withdrawing from the world, and it's quite hard to sort of visualize being at one with everything when you're deliberately hiding from everything. So this eudaimonia, there used to be an idea in, in ancient times you could achieve this through ritual. Isn't that interesting? And they would have ritual inspiration. Now, I, I know this can be achieved through meditation. And it's very, uh, and I, I believe it could be, could be achieved if you, instead of meditation as your main discipline, made ritual practice and the contemplation of ritual and the performance of ritual a means to improve yourself and to see the world more clearly and to adjust everything and to face any challenges in life skillfully, harmoniously, with good intentions. I think you could achieve eudaimonia uh, through this. Anyway, this is a bit long-winded, but I'm get, getting back to the point. If you read very early Masonic manuscripts, you get the impression that that's actually what they thought the order could do. That this making good men better, yeah, that's part of it. But if you look in the bits of the ritual and it talks about uh, communicating happiness and being happy yourself or laying down a crown of rejoicing, you actually get the impression they're not talking about happiness in the normal English term, just being joyful. They mean happiness as in eudaimonia as in you flourishing and you are making everything better by just being in the world. And I think this is a lovely direction. Now with Freemasonry, this is not for everyone. If you love learning ritual and you're interested in symbolism and stuff, this is great for you. And I think it needs to, you know, so that's a, a wonderful thing. But as you say, there are people who achieve it through a martial art practice or through just one thing in life which is they specialize in that expresses uh, uh, out in the rest of the world. Uh, maybe it could be achieved through 
interviewing people and talking to the right people. Uh, we know Socrates used to like to do that as part of his training. Well, it, it's amazing how that has really taken off in the last five, six years. The, the, I think it shows that there was a real hunger and still is for conversation that is more than, you know, 140 characters on a tweet. I mean, Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman. I mean, you have um, these, these individuals who seem to have become incredibly popular only because they like to talk to and listen to interesting people and then you know with without any agenda i think that's the key for to use joe rogan as an example why he's so successful is he doesn't really seem to have any agenda beyond he finds somebody fascinating and wants to speak with them so that's why on his show he'll have anybody from a comedian to a astrophysicist to a um, martial artist to an astronaut to a fighter pilot you know he just to Elon Musk it just seems that he has no agenda beyond talking to interesting people and that's worked very well for him well there's a question for you we know that Socrates uh, used to be able to demonstrate that people knew a lot more than they thought they knew he'd be able to uh, prove that a uh, an uneducated slave boy could do geometry if you just gave him a chance, if you just said to him, so we're going we're gonna to draw a, a square, how are we going to do this? And the, the slave boy would say, hmm, I don't know really. And he said, well, well, come on, you know, how could you do it? Well, I need, we need something straight. Brilliant, we need something straight. And what do we need next? We need to make something which is an you know, on a, a corner on an angle of 90 degrees. Okay, how are we going to do that? The right questions could allow someone to really open up their, their true nature and show their brilliance. Here's a question for you then, uh, Cameron. Could that be then, that if we reread uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, then it's actually Watson that's the genius. And all Watson does was he... He makes the environment for Sherlock and asks the right questions and is impressed at the right time and passes, makes the right publicity. If, if I was to do this to you, if I got on a plane and visited you and said, right, we're going to solve mysteries, make sure I carried a revolver like a Watson, and just gave you the space, took you to the scene and said, what do you think happened here? Who do you think was here? Are there any clues of what the person wore? If we did that again and again and again, wouldn't it be interesting to see what we found you were capable of? Could it be that often in life, it's not being the person uh, that is doing or being the person that's getting attention, sometimes making the space for others to shine can be a wonderful thing and can be a real, that's the true genius. And it sounds to me like these interviewers uh, could could be uh, a bit like that as well. I agree. And I think that's why they are able to get get the guests that they get is because, you know, they know it's a uh, 
to use a, a phrase that gets you know maligned, a safe space in the sense that um, you know they're not going on a show to be challenged or or harassed in any type of way. They're just going on a, a show where the person is genuinely interested and curious. And it's not to say that um, you know they'll always agree with the guest or they won't ask questions or challenge assumptions, but it's not done to tear anybody down. It's done just out of a genuine curiosity and a genuine interest, which can obviously easily translate to a Masonic Lodge. Um, hopefully everybody there is genuinely curious about their brothers and is interested in who they are and why they're there and what, you know, what they hope to get from Freemasonry and what they bring to Freemasonry. Um, Yes, well, one of the challenges, of course, of a Masonic Lodge is that there are so many different people there. And the lesson of tolerance, learning to get on with people from, that you'd never normally meet or never normally uh, spend time with through choice, uh, to be tolerant when decisions are made which aren't the ones you would have uh, liked. Uh, this, is, this is all part of the lessons, and it's going to happen to you. You are going, if you join, you're going to find yourself meeting someone that you're not sure you'd, you'd get on with, or you're going to be in a situation where people promote someone to do something. You're not sure that's the right person for the job. The good news is after practice, you learn to get on with people you don't get on with. You learn to have a bit of humility and remember they're putting up with you as well and to understand the decisions aren't always going to be exactly what you believe. And uh, this is, I think this is a really important lesson in life. Uh, this is a uh, good training. Is that still possible, do you think, in 20, well now 2021? It seems that, uh, and I, I put this primarily on the feed of social media, um, we're much more capable of seeking out and finding people with like-minded views and then insulating ourselves within that community. So uh, 30, 40 years ago, um, you know, you could, you, you kind of had to be sociable with your neighbors and with your coworkers, uh, with your Masonic Lodge, if you wanted to have human contact, you just had to kind of accept the people that were in your geographical area or your lodge or your work. But we're seeing more and more, I can't remember the statistic now, you know, individual go to work, then they'll come home and then they'll go on the computer and they'll connect with like-minded people and they get the validation and the confirmation bias kind of from that. Um, are we losing, do you think, the ability to tolerate differences of opinion and different views? And um, do you think that that will affect Freemasonry? Do you think that that's an area where Freemasonry can lead the way to return to more toleration or more tolerance, I should say? Um, yes. So um, where does Freemasonry fit into the expanding problem? Yes, absolutely. Well, here's, here's an important thing. So Freemasonry has always stood for a sense of equality among all um, men. And this has been from the very beginning. 
and it was a far more controversial idea when it was first invented. This level used as a contemplative tool. And although um, there needs to be different people have different jobs and some people can manage more management style things and other people are more skilled and more specifics. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, the, the truth is we're, we're, we're equal. And yes, so I, I hear what you're saying. There are some people who unfortunately limit themselves to a kind of echo chamber of their own thoughts, don't they? they if, they, if someone doesn't have the same opinion or same interest, they get rid of them and so on. I try to be tolerant of people with different uh, points of view because I don't want them to be in that echo chamber on their own. And um, but I do judge when the person is going to be receptive to a conversation on something. Uh, you know, I, I do make a, a judgment. I think that we've got to be very cautious uh, in not to take things too far we need to be uh, make sure that if someone is saying something which is inciting violence or uh, uh, is uh, or persecution of someone that is actually that's gone into a new area now so that's we can listen to a lot of different opinions that's all great but if you're actually trying to take do something's going to take action against people who uh, you know have who are innocent then, and who uh, you you know that this is this is a different area. So there are limits of opinions that we're we're willing to see uh, or or to pass on or to give uh, a platform to in our lives. I think there's a certain point, and, and actually sometimes if you talk to someone, they realise oh I didn't quite mean to say it like that. I didn't you know so they could adjust things. You do need to say something. So Freemasonry is most certainly a place for those who are broad-minded, free-thinking, tolerant individuals who want to hear a diverse set of different opinions on things and uh, think about life and be inspired. Uh, but it's not a place where you would be going if you wanted to discuss those things that can cause unrest, like religion or politics. This is uh, a good principle to avoid in Lodge. Um, I think outside of that, I think if there is a tendency of people bunching together, and I, I can kind of see how, how that could be happening, then I think it's something we need to, to uh, move to a remedy in ourselves. So I have friends who are extremely uh, passionate about different subjects that I don't have much of an interest in. So much so that when I'm with them, I start finding myself interested in them. It's really It's really good to sort of open that up. I have people who are politically quite left-wing or particularly quite right-wing, and it's it's refreshing actually for me to hear those different opinions. Um, so yes, I, I myself I'm looking for a balance right in the middle. That's why I want to be straight down the line. I want to, you know, I really think that's a good thing. Uh, but hearing someone say something can be a bit of a wake-up call. Uh, hearing someone expressing an, an opinion. But, you know, these extremes, they kind of go together near the sort of... <laughs> you get so extreme that left and right starts to join into sort of trouble. And, uh, or you get people who've got a bit of fire and they're worked up and it's a lot easier to blame other things. We've got to help those people 
to kind of see a, a, a more balanced, pleasant way for everyone. I think that's a, a good thing and set a good example. Um, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. The world's joined now in a way that it has never been uh, before. And it is possible in that joining to revere difference, to respect different cultures and uh, to respect difference between uh, people, uh, depending on what body they're born with, uh, depending on what they're being, but also to have standards uh, whereby there's no defence. So there's no defence for hurting people who haven't committed any crime. There's no defence uh, for hating someone just because of where they've, you know, where they're born or what gender they are or what race they are. I mean, wow, you know, what are you, you going? So the, I think this is this is the the way. Let's let's stand for lots of different opinions and learn from them all. And indeed, let's learn from the ones we disagree with more. Let's really entertain those ideas. Just like you're talking about that um, fight club. Someone, a confused person might think, oh God, that film is trying to incite something. It's going to encourage this. No, it's exploring an option. Uh, for me, it would be a lesson definitely not to go that far down an alleyway, you know. Uh, learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, uh, so I think that's, that's an important thing too. Yeah, I think in, in a way politics is the, the red herring of, of, of the conversation. It's when we talk about polarization on the internet or social media, I think it's where most people go right away for obvious reasons because it's been such a part of the news but really, um, it can be any. It can be any idea or ideas. It's more like we talked about the tendency for people to um, to isolate within groups that think alike on any number of topics. Um, flat Earth society, or or whatever it might be, where um, they're able to find other people who agree, and then. They, you know, they they go down that whatever rabbit hole it may be, um, as opposed to meeting in a Masonic lodge, for example, where there might where there will be multiple views and hopefully a few views to say, you know, the Earth is actually round or some, something to that effect. Um, it just seems as though, yet that's another potential benefit to Freemasonry. Is the it forces you to meet people who don't aren't going to think like you necessarily and will have different ideas and different viewpoints even if it's a you know the the relative benefits of uh, movies versus books or something like whatever it may be just that ability to have that discussion I think is something Freemasonry has to offer um, the world right now because it does seem to be getting more and more polarized into these smaller and smaller groups online where, you know, you yes, have these... Yes, I think, yeah, a, could most certainly, I think a Masonic Lodge should, if if the membership is, uh, is diverse in the sense of opinion and interest, be an ideal place. And it's something I've experienced. So I, I've been to Masonic Lodges where 
the the uh, people there uh, vary with such uh, a great uh, difference. I've been to in uh, lodges where I'm meeting a farmer, and his accents. So it's another Englishman. His accent is so strong that I can't understand anything he's saying. And uh, uh, likewise, I've met people who are from um, uh, whole different interest areas or whole different cultural areas. Uh, I've been to lodges in London who are mostly Indian and it's wonderful to be there. Uh, it's an amazing thing to see how they, they put their own different colour into what they're doing and do things with a different kind of feel and precision. Uh, so I think there's a, a wonderful uh, possibilities there to, to explore and to learn from others. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's, that's a good thing. And I think if we were back in the Renaissance, if we were back in sort of uh, that time, these gentlemen would love to be able to see what the other person was up to. There's, there's a wonderful text. Um, it's, a, it's in the, the Prestonian lectures. I don't know whether you're aware of these. Um, the Prestonian lectures are the, are the only uh, lectures given in England which are um, approved by Grand Lodge, officially approved by the Grand Lodge of England. And we have a Prestonian lecture every year. Uh, the, the book we've just sort of published, it's a collection of these. There's one paper in there by a man called Trevor Stewart, and it looks at what the early London lodges were actually doing in their meetings. Now, you're probably aware that in early Freemasonry, the brethren used to draw in chalk on the floor. They didn't have temples like we have now. That was all in their imagination. But they used to draw as a, an aid for their imagination and perhaps put items of symbolism around. But if you read this book, you actually also discover that they were having displays of fine uh, and beautiful stones. They were having people come in and teach them about optics and shining lights through different areas. Uh, they were learning about biology and astronomy, and they were, they were having different books, philosophical ones, uh, hermetic ones, lent between each other. Now, no one's done such a report on other lodges across the country um, outside London, but this certainly shows this exciting thing uh, going on, whereby we've got these people with different endeavours they're sharing. Now, I don't know what it's like for you, Cameron, but in my friendship group, it's just like that. We've got people who are really interested in yoga and they uh, I have hours talking about Patanjali Sutras with them. I've got someone who's studying shamanism and actually travels out to Mexico to do this and is telling me about his experience. I've got other people who are really working on other projects. They're, they're binding um, books in the old way or they're creating instruments from times gone by and playing traditional music. So I think, I think this is this love of learning and interest and joy of life is something that for me has shone throughout Freemasonry. We've kind of kept the Renaissance in there a little bit. And there's someone in your lodge right now, Cameron, studying something very obscure. They're studying the history of Masonic gloves in, uh, or something, or the, the first person to ever wear a, 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 um, a Masonic uh, hat or something. They're studying 
the history of the dining or something? When was the first meal? When was the first Masonic meal in the whole of Canada? So you meet these eccentric individuals who are up to their own plans. They're tinkering with something. They're making a model of their own Masonic hall as a random example. You know, that you can, you can have a scale model of the hall that they've made. Some people, are, they're up to these things. So I think that's a, a beautiful and dynamic thing to be part of. Yes, some people are, are making scale models, such as uh, Square and Compass. I'll leave, uh, I'll leave a link for it. It's very cool. You brought up uh, bad memories, though, when you mentioned Masonic gloves. We had a, a worshipful master, oh uh, gosh, six years ago or so. But I remember he he was very strict. He wanted all the officers to wear gloves um, during degrees. And I'll back up, but I use a, a wheelchair to, to get around and try, there are those white gloves, trying to get a grip on my chair with white gloves was incredibly challenging. And I also would hold, hold the tools for the lecture and they would always slip. I begged him to let us not wear gloves, but he would not budge. He was very, wanted every officer to wear gloves. I hated them. It's my, my most least favorite Masonic memory, those gloves. There, there we go. His living proof that everyone's equal within Freemasonry. Uh, your brother and you're in a wheelchair <laughs> you still have to wear the gloves <laughs> so That's there great. we are they can see they well um cameron it's been wonderful speaking uh, to you and i look at the time we've uh, we've talked for many hours um i wonder uh, perhaps uh, you and i sh um, should uh, think about wrapping this up a little bit now so that our viewers uh, aren't tested in their attention spans uh, what are your thoughts on this? I was thinking the same thing. Uh, before we go, I figured I will leave the links in the description, but if you want to give a quick uh, mention of how to get in touch with Lewis Masonic, how to get a copy of your work, um, mm. your YouTube page, all that type of stuff, and all the links will be in the description. Yes, certainly. So. First and foremost, uh, lewismasonic.co.uk. Uh, but if you put Lewis Masonic into any search engine, we will appear. And uh, the same uh, uh, should apply for McCoy, who are our American distributor. Let me just check I get their website co uh, correct. Yes, yeah, so mccoy.com. And if you're watching from Canada or anywhere near America, you're probably going to find it more efficient to, to order uh, from, uh, from McCoy. Well, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, Martin Fox is already in the logarithm, you know, make, click like, uh, but if, it, if there isn't any, uh, a, a link appearing with Martin Fox in there, do put Martin Fox into the YouTube search. Uh, do subscribe to the channel uh, if, you, if you enjoy the kind of subjects uh, we're covering. There's also a Lewis Masonic a YouTube uh, channel if you should so wish and uh, that way we can we can keep in touch and you can uh, see what everyone's working on. Excellent and once again links are in the description 
thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's much later in England than it is here in Windsor, so I appreciate it. And I hope no fencers decide to attack you uh, on the street after this interview. Let's, let's, let's hope not. And um, I will be on my guard. <laughs>